When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. As quickly as we put it together, Once Upon a Mattress was built to last. Sixty years on, it remains one of the most popular titles in the musical theater catalog, performed hundreds of times a year by schools and amateurs and revived regularly by professionals. It had a classic fish-out-of-water theme and an independent heroine in the Jane Austen mold, if Austen got out of the house a bit more, say, to the Catskills. That heroine is called Winifred of Farfalot, or Winifred the Woebegone, a big, awkward, loudmouth princess born to royalty but nevertheless a misfit, likable but unsure of herself. Despite her exalted provenance, she has to outwit a vain and icy queen to get what she wants and live happily ever after. (laughs) Story of my life. If only I'd realized it. You just heard Christine Baranski narrating Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers, written by Mary Rogers and Jesse Green, who you also heard narrating the footnotes. Mary Rogers was the daughter of the composer Richard Rogers, a musical theater composer herself, then author and philanthropist, as well as mother of six children. She was also clearly the woman you wanted to be seated next to at a dinner party. Funny, honest, and self-effacing, she knew everyone in American musical theater and worked with many of them. An old friend of Stephen Sondheim's, whom she called the love of her life, a confidant of the great producer Hal Prince, a colleague of Leonard Bernstein's, to name a few, and I mean very few, of the folks who people this book. American musical theater in its golden age was her orbit, and her life begged for a memoir. Thankfully, she wrote one in collaboration with the New York Times theater critic Jesse Green, who completed it after Mary's death in 2014. Her astute observations about theater, friends, acquaintances, and colleagues are amazingly outspoken, but never mean-spirited because she casts that same discerning eye on herself, though her portrayal of her distant and demanding parents is both chilling and vivid. As much a portrait of a smart and talented woman trying to carve out a creative life for herself as it is an insider's look at musical theater in the mid-20th century. Shy is a tour de force. Constructed as a first-person narrative, it rather unusually has footnotes which provides history, context, and corrections to the story Mary is telling. And the audiobook is brought vividly to life by award-winning actor Christine Baranski in what amounts to a terrific one-woman show, while Jesse Green himself narrates the footnotes. I spoke with them both before the audiobook of Shy was released. Here's our conversation. 
Well, Christine Baranski and Jesse Green, first of all, thank you both for taking the time to come and talk about the book Shy today. Jesse, you wrote the book. Christine, you narrated it. And of course, Jesse, you narrate as well. Well, Joe, I I narrate approximately 10%, 8% of it. Christine has 470 <laughs> pages to read. Yeah, no, it, that's definitely true, but but it's a good featured part. <laughs> it's, it's a supporting role, as in footnotes. I've, I've done that in my career, footnotes. <laughs> So, Jesse, why don't we begin with you and a little bit of background about how the book Shy came to be? Well, Mary Rogers, whose married name was Mary Rogers Gettle, was a wonderful grand dame of the theater, a composer in a time when there were almost no women composers, and later on, someone who wrote wonderful young adult books and became a doyen of uh, educational uh, philanthropy, ran the Juilliard School, etc., And she had just the most incredible life. Everyone always told her she would have to write her memoirs. Among other things, aside from what I've said, her father was Richard Rogers, but that's perhaps not a footnote. It it gave her an insight and a placement in the center of American musical culture in its best years, in the golden years, as they call them. And uh, not only that, her son, one of her children, Adam Gettle, is himself a composer. So you have three generations of musical theater composers. It's too good a story. Everyone told her to write it, and she didn't want to. So eventually, to make this long story short, she decided the way to do it would be to have fun with someone else. And we were friends by that point. And she asked if I would work on it with her. And I couldn't think of anything that would be more of a hoot than to sit with her in her living room for, you know, what turned out to be two and a half years, hearing her life and prodding her to remember things she didn't and being shocked and picking my jaw off the floor half the time because it was even more extreme and hilarious and sad than I had ever imagined. And Christine, had you known Mary? Being a Juilliard alum, I did attend some uh, events, and I saw Mary, and she was very friendly, really wonderful trajectory, because I think I went into show business or wanted to be an entertainer, because on Friday nights, I'd listen to the score of South Pacific in my grandmother's bedroom. She had a phonograph, and that was the one album I listened to over and over, and I played every role. And so when I was doing this book, I thought, hmm, there's, a, there's some kind of marvelous arc over time that I'm here reading her life. And also I had attended Juilliard in 1970. And so she was hugely important to the prosperity of the school and made a huge contribution. So in a word, yes, I did know her, but I unfortunately never was in her living room listening to her stories as Jesse was. Jesse, you spent all this time with Mary Rogers, and then she did unfortunately pass away, and you had a stack of work that you then had to put together. How did you go about crafting this extraordinary book? Well, I did have something like 600 pages of of my typing of what she was saying. I didn't record it. Uh, She didn't want that, and I didn't really want to transcribe it. So I just typed really, really fast for a long time. And yes, that was that was the big problem, especially because I wasn't going to have her guidance at that point. But two things. One, she had given me her guidance, in effect, all along. We would have discussions as she would relate the stories. We would talk about, well, 
do we use that? How do we use that? How can we make that funnier? How can we make that richer? So there, there was a lot of that conversation that went on while she was still alive. And she did, before she died, see one small section of the book. In fact, what turned out to be the first section of the book, which I showed her and she didn't love. So <laughs> I was left with the impression that I had to do better. She read it and she said, make it meaner, make it funnier. And I was like, oh, Mary, I don't see how it could be more of either of those things. I mean, the section that I read to her was called Hostilities. That's the first part of the book. And uh, it's kind of mean. And it's very funny. Anyway, I had a lot of guidance just from having absorbed her and her voice over all that time. And in a way, as Christine was saying, having had that voice in me my whole life, just by having listened to her father's work and and her work. I was in Once Upon a Mattress, her most famous musical, twice as a kid. So, you know, I had sung all those songs. And when you sing the songs of a composer, if they're any good, you're somehow... Mm, filling your lungs with them. I hope that's not too gross a way to say it. But I, I felt when I met her, like I knew her. And the truth is I did. Christine, I wonder what was your first thought when you were offered this audiobook to record? Offered? She was begged. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that it would be a great privilege. And I thought I would wind up spending time with the most extraordinary people through Mary and her memories of all these extraordinary people that I would then be in Mary's living room like Jesse, and there she was with Daddy and then with Mommy and with Steve and with Lenny. And it's just a, a dream, as Jesse said. It's a period in theater history. Her life, she just literally had intimate relationships, the most intimate, with the most extraordinary talents. So I loved it because in addition to reading Mary's book about four times, I was reading the Richard Rogers biography and reading about Rogers and Hammerstein. And of course, I reviewed, you know, Steve's work. And I just got to spend time with all these geniuses. Well, the book itself, but then when you hear it as an audiobook, it's like a one-woman show. It is. Um, that was the challenge of it is because it's written in the first person. Although it is, you want it to be as conversational as possible. Nobody speaks that long <laughs> or, you know, chapters <laughs> worth. So you're self-generating, you know. So I said to Jesse, I'm going to pretend I'm sitting across from you and I'm just talking. But, you know, for 400 and some pages, that's where your challenge is. Well, Jesse, as you wrote the book in Mary's voice, were you thinking of a one-woman show? Were you thinking about it theatrically? When I was taking all of my hundreds of pages of notes and trying to figure out how to structure the book, one of the things that I knew from the beginning was that it had to be dominated by Mary's voice, which, as I say, I knew intimately by that point that that's what I wanted readers to hear. And that's, oddly enough, what she wasn't able to produce herself when she tried to write parts of the book before I came onto it. And so in a way, I felt I was I was writing a radio drama or something like that, and, and which is why it makes wonderful sense that it becomes an audiobook finally. But also I was treating her as, as she and I had discussed, as a character in a drama who happened to have this real life that she lived, but to write her, give her stories a shape that would be dramatic and that would sustain you over the course of a very long, very detailed, very eventful life. 
And so uh, what Christine is talking about was uh, she had to then take what was essentially a kind of drama and pull it apart, I imagine, in the way she would a role that she was taking on for live theater. Christine, you're taking us through hundreds of pages in the voice of Mary Rogers. What was the process of getting to the heart of her for finding that voice? I think the wonderful thing about her voice and her her character was she was very direct about life and she narrated or wrote this book at a time in her life where she wasn't going to pull any punches and she didn't strike me as someone who was sentimental ever in her life. There was something very matter of fact and dry and as you said, you know, a really whiskey sense of humor. I mean, I wish I had a voice that were an, at least an octave lower so I could do that. But I realized that if I attempted to affect that kind of deep Bacall type voice, that smoker's voice, mm-hmm. let's say, I didn't want it to be an affect. It had to it had to be coming naturally over the course of all those hundreds of pages. I had to just be speaking. But, you know, I just spent time over every chapter, sure. And I thought, okay, what? What is the essence? What is this is Mary's girlhood. This is her marriage. This is the loss of her son. Some of that stuff is very emotional. And yet she's curiously, I don't want to say she's not an emotional person, but she is very, very direct. And she's not one to be emotionally indulgent. It's interesting. It's almost as if she had learned the uh, acting 101 lesson of, you know, don't play the subtext. Yeah, let other people cry, don't you cry. I had to put that chapter down several times when I read about the death of her son. I put the book down. I couldn't keep reading it. Today, I actually looked at it again in anticipation of this interview. I was just paging through the chapters, reminding myself, and I came to that chapter, and I, once again, I put it down. So it's it's just so harrowing, and uh, but it's when you narrate it as Mary in, in the way it's written, there are no violins playing. There's, it is what it is. And I think that's the strength of it. That's the strength of her personality is her, you know, she just lived through a great deal and she just kept going and not commenting on her, on her feelings, you know, just get on with it. Stop feeling, just do. There's, there's something to that effect in the, in the book. There's no self-pity no, at all. In no, her. The chapter of her son's death, it is harrowing. And with a book that everyone describes and quite rightly as, oh, this is so much fun. You're going to have a blast. There are moments that really are painful, none more so than the death of her son. And that's a real tonal shift in the book, as it should be. And as you said, Christine, it, it was difficult to narrate. Mm. Um well, because she wouldn't have broken down and cried. You'd think, oh, an actress gets to do a chapter where, you know, she lives through it. And I have to keep reminding myself, no, you can't. You have to be Mary. You can't be Christine because I just sobbed my way through it, of course. Well, Mary had learned a lesson early in life. I mean, I'm not sure that this wonderful quality of hers, you know, came from such a happy source. The, no. One of the reasons she was so unsentimental and did not cry, even in telling that story, she absolutely remained dry uh, when she told it to me, is because she felt that she could not cry in front of her mother, that it made her too vulnerable to her mother's aggression. 
And uh, there's a lot of stories about that in the book. And as a result, she told me she never cries at sad things. And I never did see her cry at anything sad. She only would cry at happy things, particularly, she said, and I love this, when people unexpectedly did something very kind. Now, that speaks in part to the (laughs) rarity of that having happened in her life, particularly her childhood. But it's also kind of a wonderful philosophy to be more moved by happy things, good things, people behaving well than the opposite. Uh, The benefit in any case for me was that I understood how to tell the story the way she felt it by cutting back. In fact, the editor of the book, Jonathan Galassi at Farrar Strauss, uh, had me cut it back even a little bit more. And the more I cut it back, the more upsetting it became for, Mm. for me as a reader. So a good lesson for all of us. Yeah, but you know, she's not bitter. When I read the book, I thought this this is not a bitter woman. She's not cynical about life. Her strength, as I say, is in her, you know, play the hand you're dealt and uh, rather matter of fact way of speaking about her life. And I think that's why people have taken to the book. There's something buoyant about it. There's something of joy, even when she's speaking about the most difficult times in her life and all of those failed love affairs and the failed career attempts. I mean, there's something like like a twinkling kind of wisdom in it all. Well, she was an artist and she loved artists. Nothing uh, excited her more than talented people, particularly talented men. Yes. The, the love of her life being Steve Sondheim. <laughs> yes. And as an artist, as someone who loved the way artists work, she would always put her stories in the context of sharing uh, knowledge and events, not in the context of personal expression, which can seem odd if you think about artists as uh, narcissistic, which many people do. But in in fact, what she was aiming to do was to help me frame her life uh, as you might a piece of art where her life was just the raw material. This is what I was saying earlier. She she wanted us to think about her, this Mary Rogers person, as a character in a novel. Well, let's talk about the structure of the book and the audiobook. It's very unusual. There are many, many footnotes. So many, they're almost a minor character, and they are vital to that book. And when I first read the book, I thought, okay, how is this going to be an audiobook? You can't leave the notes out. They're just too essential. Can you walk us through the writing of those very important notes, Jesse? Right. Well, that was part of the decision-making at the very beginning, because if you have Mary delivering this book-length monologue, basically, and, and if the idea is to reproduce her voice and her joy and her sadness, but even in her sadness, her joy in telling the stories, you could not have her explaining herself because she wouldn't do that. One Mm -hmm. of the things I always use as an example is she didn't call her father Richard Rogers, the great American composer. (laughs) She called him daddy. And she called, she didn't call her mother, you know, the the very difficult but very intelligent uh, inventor and uh, interior designer, Dorothy Finer Rogers. She called her mummy. So it became clear to me that there was going to have to be some apparatus where I could make up for what 
I wouldn't allow Mary to be saying. She wouldn't explain who Betty Comden was. She wouldn't explain what South Pacific was. She wouldn't do any of that because if you're sitting in her living room, you know that. So it became clear that there were going to have to be these notes and they then became an opportunity for me to develop a very quietly a second character in the book who sometimes challenged her, sometimes corrected her mistakes, sometimes prodded her, had a difference of opinion, but also was there as the book got darker and sadder and as she became ill to complete the story. How you make that into an audiobook was something I could not at first figure out. But then you did. Well, a lot of people did. (laughs) (laughs) The audiobook publishers were really helpful and the engineers and, you know, all the people working on it. The, The main problem, not to belabor a technical point, but, you know, the ear can't do what the eye can do. So if you're reading the book and you see an asterisk or whatever that tells you to look at the note at the bottom of the page, well, you can skip it if you want, or or you can read the note and then go back to the text and reread the portion that you had just read to put it in context, or you can flip back and forth. You can do whatever you want with your eye, but you can't do that in an audiobook. You get one shot and you can only place it in one place. You can't read the note later. If you've missed it, you've missed it. So placing them became very difficult. And we had to move a ton of them because they were not in places that worked for the ear, uh, Mm -hmm. even though they worked for the eye. Daddy is how we have to begin. If you've read this far, you probably already know that Daddy was Richard Rogers, 1902 to 1979, composer, womanizer, alcoholic, genius. The only way he knew to have fun with us was by playing ear training games, challenging us to identify various intervals and later chords. He would strike two notes on the piano, say a G and a B flat, and my sister and I would race to come up with minor third. Or he'd try to trick us with ninths, thinking we might confuse them with seconds. It was all quite easy until we got to diminished fifths and augmented fourths, which on a piano looked the same. I later learned that this was a routine exercise in elementary music theory classes, universally considered boring. But I liked it, and so did Linda. Mary's sister, who outshone Mary as a pianist, if not as a composer. Because Daddy seemed to like us when we answered correctly, and to like himself for having taught us so well. Neither of which likings we saw much evidence of otherwise. Jesse, you ended up narrating those notes, and I think you did a great job. But I'm very curious about what that was like for you to be narrating a tenth of the book. Well, I have to say, I wrote myself the worst role in the history of audiobooks. (laughs) I, I, I didn't know that at the time. But of course, you know, part of what that voice is doing is filling you in with facts. So half of what I said began... Richard Rogers, 1919 to 1979. You know, like I was giving a lot of death dates. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but that (laughs) stuff is hard to read. I mean, your eye knows what to do, but when you actually have to put it in your mouth, it's very weird. Now, Jesse, I hope it will engender in you as a critic an appreciation for actors who have to do exposition. (laughs) I've done plenty of that in Act One and various roles. (laughs) <laughs> well, touche, Christine. And I, I, won't, 
I will have to be much more generous. I it, it was a really a great learning experience. I can't say I enjoyed it in the sense of sitting in a hot booth, just reading these short bits of which there are, I, I think there's six or 700, something like that. Uh, they grow longer as the book goes on. But I, I was fascinated to see what I had written because you you don't really know what you've written until you hear it. And that applies both to your own voice, which, you know, is anyone thrilled to hear their own voice? No. But also, <laughs> well, but also, Christine, it applied to hearing the book in your voice, which I learned so much more about what it was and what Mary was and also what, what I had done. And the the joy and intelligence, those words are what I would say apply, of how you figured out every sentence, where the where the rhythm had to lead you, how the big words, like a big note in the song, had to be hit in a certain way. Mm. It was just thrilling. Oh, thank you. I think it's a, it's wonderful, the footnotes, because Mary, as you said, she, it, it was Daddy, it was Steve, it was Lenny. There's such a, a effortless currency in her world. These were all just people that were in her life. But the footnotes remind the listener <laughs> that these were really the most extraordinary talents. I don't. I don't think the footnotes are invasive and take you away. I, I never felt. Oh my God, Jesse's now just going to interrupt. It was always a relief that you came in and did some of my heavy lifting for me. But more <laughs> to the point is, uh, is that it was you know those par- parenthetical remarks about who you were, who she was dealing with, kept you in the historical placement of 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 her life and it you know it goes on for decades and she just knew so many really extraordinary people that was another function of the footnotes as as christine noticed that yeah it just helped you it helped keep you in place in what was going to be a very long story uh and of course as with the physical book with an audio book you can just play it in chapters because there are lots of shortish chapters so it's it's not daunting at all i hope to listen to but you know the the structure is is a little unusual but you have to have the notes in the book or you're not getting the book i thought it worked wonderfully because it as you said it gives you the context without pulling you out of the story christine it has to be very different for you someone who's used to working in theater, on film, and television, but in an atmosphere that's much more collaborative than being in a booth with you and the book. And I wonder if that took some getting used to and how you adjusted for that. Well, I hadn't done an audio book in ages. Oddly enough, the first audio book I ever did was The First Wives Club. And I read this book and I went, gosh, this would make a good movie. If only I had some disposable income, I'd option it. And of course... But uh, the audiobooks that I have done, I don't mind being alone in a booth. In fact, it's it's a wonderful art form because it's, it has to do with the subtlety of your voice and, and how you choose to spin a sentence or put a top spin on a certain word. It's It belongs completely to you until, of course, Jesse interrupts, but it belongs to you. And in a way, it's a huge responsibility, but it's also wonderfully challenging to just bring that person to life in through your voice. Uh, but other books that I did had people, had dialogue between characters, so I would assume different voices and all. In this, 
it was just Mary's voice. It wasn't even my affecting the voice of other people talking to Mary. I didn't think that was appropriate either. So I, I think there is a, a real challenge to being alone in a booth for days and days and hours and hours. And you have to know when to take a break or say, I think, I think that's it for the day, because there were days when I could get, I think my first few days, I did 100 pages. And then it was, okay, I think by noon, we might be done. Or let's save this next chapter till tomorrow, because it really needs a lot of fresh energy. I was terribly aware of how to negotiate my energy. Uh, and, you know, when it came to some of the really big chapters near the end, I, I wanted to be fresh. I would go home at night and review what was to be done the next day, but it's better to just have a good night's sleep before you get back in there because you, you really don't want to sound like you're in any way losing your buoyancy, your verbal ability. And she was a very, very intelligent, literate woman who was raised by a man who cared so much about the English language, you know, and, and would correct everybody, everybody's grammar. So, you know, you had to be not just saying these sentences, but you're speaking as a person who loves language, who knows how to speak and who speaks very well. And the book takes a lot of stamina. It's over 15 hours. The finished product is 15 hours, which of course means oh everybody God. put more into it. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I uh wow that's that that song and I I for myself with so much less to do I was very aware of losing stamina I I mean I have no muscle for it I I feel like I lost stamina after about 10 minutes in the booth you know I hadn't quite anticipated how warm and stuffy it would be in there and of course the engineers out there looking fresh and happy with his bottles of water and I'm in the, you know so I I didn't have Christine's uh, years of practice maintaining a character over long periods of time, a whole night in a play or, or, or yeah. years in a television show. And I'm sure this is true with anybody who does an audiobook. There's days or there's hours where you begin the chapter and it, and it just flows. It flows. And then for some reason, you hit a bump and you will be stopped it for a wrong word. You will be stopped if there's a gurgle or a sound in your stomach, I've done audiobooks with a pillow on my stomach because the microphone hears everything. So when it flows, you're like surfing, you're just speaking the character. And then, and then it can start and often it starts falling apart. If you get tired or distracted, or you're not as familiar with a certain passage that you wish you were, that's why I read the book so many times because I had to know what was coming with every paragraph that I was saying. And you know, when people are talking, they're not thinking about the, what's coming, they just speak. And that's sort of the art of this, is to let it flow as though Mary, you know, Mary's just talking and there's pauses and there's moments and, and but it's it's to keep that that conversational style alive it needs a level of, of flexibility and and a kind of relaxation and you start to stiffen up after a certain period of time as you you you, you just can't become too aware of the fact that you're reading and not wanting to make a mistake because then you're really 
<laughs> you really start making mistakes. And Jesse, for you, you're reading the notes. You're reading what you wrote. You must have felt authors typically do like, oh, why did I write this sentence? <laughs> oh, I, f- I felt that pretty much the whole way through. Um, <laughs> I mean, on, on my part, not, not not the part Christine read, just because it's such a bizarre uh, format that I had written for that voice, but also because although I write out loud in a way, I, you know, I I'm either speak out loud every word I write or I mouth it at least because I want to make sure it, you know, it, it rhythmically mm-hmm. sits correctly. You know, you, you simply can't know what it is for real until you step away from it for a while and look at it fresh and cold. And I didn't remember half of what I wrote either, which was kind of a shock. And occasionally I would go, oh, that's good. But more often, you know, I was just trying to serve what I felt the moment would need. We had these problems where Christine was going to have to maintain the arc of the storytelling while I'm like this this fruit fly buzz, <laughs> buzzing around and getting in her way. And, and, and yet she couldn't like just swap me with a newspaper. So, so I had to figure out how can I just sort of sort of insinuate myself quickly, just really quickly and (laughs) suavely into this line and then get out really fast so she can keep going and telling the story. And and we we did part of the book together and a lot of it separately, but we saved for the together portions those places where the back and forth was going to be just impossible unless we could actually hear each other live and and see each other on the the monitor. We, We were not in the same booth, though. Because right. they were worried that I would swat Jesse, so, so they put him. They put him in an entirely different room. <laughs> yeah, I, Christine, did yours have the straight jacket like mine did, or is that was that just mine? <laughs> that was in my contract. I think, <laughs> I think that's the author only booth. Ah, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, it succeeds wonderfully as an audiobook, and I'm not surprised to learn that at certain points you were together, which is very rare. So that's a that's a great thing because as I was listening, I really just stopped at one point and thought, how are they doing this so so effortlessly? Well there were there were parts of it as as we said that we were to we were recording simultaneously. And there were other parts yeah. where they would uh, the engineers would play me what Christine had done so I knew exactly wh- how I was to fit in. But most of it was their doing. I mean they are so clever at creating the raw materials in such a way that they can be manipulated. Just the isolation of the sound or all these technical things I don't really understand. But by eliminating a half a second here or there, they can make a huge change in the way the storytelling feels. And I was really glad to be heavily edited, which is not something you have anyone has ever heard me say. <laughs> Christine, you've had such a rich career in theater. You had to have known many of the people Mary was talking about in her book, Stephen Sondheim, for example. I know. Yeah. How was that for you? Was that challenging? Was it intriguing? Was it fun? It was all of those things, but a real sense of responsibility towards those lives. You know, it was, I knew Steve and I, you know, I read about his career and did his musicals, that extraordinary relationship between the two of them. And it was more than I knew when he invited her to move into his 49th Street townhouse and the awkwardness and 
the poignancy of that, you know, that that was the great love of her life. You know, I, it was, that was getting really close. I mean, really, you, you want to honor the, the memory of those people. I, I worked once with Hal Prince. I met Leonard Bernstein a few times, but I, you know, I'm a girl from Buffalo. I was raised in Chictawaga, New York, and I heard these names, and you know, I heard about the American theater. It was just the most extraordinary world to enter when I went to Juilliard in the 1970s, and you know, I revered and still do revere so many of the people in the book. So it was just a feeling of wanting to take great care and treat it respectfully, but also be Mary, because Mary, you know, she didn't have a whole lot of reverence. She, those were her, you know, that, that was her world. Those were people she was friendly with or sleeping with or angry with. And uh, as I said, that, that was kind of wonderful to be that free in the company of all those great people and treat them all like, like oh, they were just a, an intimate part of life. I was dazzled by Steve, completely stunned. I knew right away he was brilliant, and he just reeked of talent, which not illogically was always the biggest turn-on for me. I married two tall, blue-eyed men. Tall, blue-eyed husband number one, Julian Jerry Bonner Beatty, Jr., 1916 to 2011. Married 1951, divorced 1958. Tall, blue-eyed husband number two, Henry Hank Gettle, 1928 to 2013, married 1961. You will note that almost everyone in this family has a yachty nickname. Richard Rogers was Dick, of course. Richard, Linda, Constance, and Alexander became Todd, Nina, Kim, and Alec. Adam got dum-dum from his Aunt Linda. Mary mercifully switched it to Ad. But Mary herself was always just plain Mary, except to her grandchildren, who called her May May. But the men I had the most fun with were dark. And boy, was Steve dark. He wasn't obnoxious, but impatient, a bit snappish. Pleasant, but not boy-girl pleasant. I was just a body there. I don't think he thought I was as bright as he was, and he was right. He knew I wasn't up to his standards, but nobody was. Later, we did become almost equals, except in the brain department. But at that moment, I thought I would never be as infatuated with anyone again. I don't know if this will make sense, but this is a long book, and it doesn't seem long. And I'm curious why you might think this is so. I think you can tolerate this many pages and this many hours with a character who is in no way, you know, puffing herself up through her stories of the, the the terrible things that other people did. It never felt with her like being with one of those daft old, you know, Hollywood types who, you know, everything had happened to them. They were a victim of everybody else's malfeasance. To me, it felt like a book on how to try to live as an artist. I mean, that's what her storytelling was to me. Like, this is how you have an honest life within peculiar circumstances. And I also think, um, because it, it's it's a long book, but it, it one of the challenges of reading it is there were so many failed love affairs, and there were so many attempts that didn't work. And I think it's important that they remained in there 
just to show the long distance runner aspect of, of Mary. There's a, a wonderful line early in the book where she said, um, Steve says, you have to learn to bounce. And my version of that is learning to swerve. She hmm. says, there are a few straight lines in life and how you get from one thing to another and then to another is more a testament to resilience than to brilliance. Mm -hmm. And also she says, it pays not to know what you can't do and not to add up the damage. So by including all of those ups and downs and then getting back up and, you know, then it didn't work out yet again, or then the relationships, you know, that's where you see in the course of this very long life, her stamina and and then that's why it's so admirable that she remained you know a person who was hopeful who had great love and emotional generosity and and was very honest and unabashed about who she was and this this was going to be her gift was her honesty in this book I think that's right. I think the same, and I'm using the words jaundiced in, in inverted commas, but that same jaundiced eye that she would use to look at other people and assess them quite honestly, she also used on herself, which makes the book without any mean spiritedness whatsoever. And as we all agreed earlier, there's also no bitterness. And sometimes it's very, it's, it's a hard needle to thread often mm. to be very, very frank and not be bitter. And I think this book succeeds wonderfully. I was really moved by one of the last chapters after her husband, Hank, dies. The poignancy and great loss of that was so, so well expressed. And I was I was particularly moved by the way she kept expecting him to come walking into the room. She said, and I haven't heard you read it yet, Christine. I, I sort of am holding off. In that last chapter, she uh, talking about Hank. She says, "Who who will wind the clocks?" Oh, I, I know. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> I know. You know, a lot of I think what I use dramatically because I couldn't do a break in the voice or mm -hmm. any tearfulness. I I chose to use um, just some pauses. You know, just because silence, you can fill in the blanks with silence. Yeah. And the that chapter and. The chapter of losing her son. It's just, you know, if you hear someone speak of loss, it's often they they just can't speak, and there's this quietness, and that's where it all that's where all the feeling is. And in an audiobook, you know, someone who's talking all the time to suddenly go quiet, you know, that's going to have a, an effect. So yeah. When people don't live near you, you tend to think they're just away. Hank lived near me, usually right across this breakfast table, but that's what I mostly think, too. He's just off somewhere, back in 15 minutes. See you at supper. Until I remember things like setting the clocks. Who's going to do all these clocks? God, come back and do the clocks. Now the clocks will never be done. I also found it so interesting how front of mind her parents always were, always so present for her. I think it's a wonderful, also like a wonderful study in a portrait and what it is to be the child of 
a genius uh, of someone at the stature of Richard Rogers, where while you're a little girl, he is, you know, just coming into this level of success. And it is a very heavy mantle to wear, to mm. be the child of an immensely talented, complicated, perhaps emotionally distant person who only knows to put all that emotion into work. And I think, you know, her pain and, and, and the struggle she had and being this, you know, being told she was overweight and unattractive and how she, you know, struggled through that. It's, you know, we when we read about famous people, we often don't don't realize what a price tag it is on the on the children, unless of course the children are totally screwed up and go into rehab and crash and burn. You know, there are all all kinds of stories like that. But hers is a hers is a survival story of just looking at it and saying, "Man, just freaking difficult." All I wanted couldn't she just be nice to me once? You know, the mother when she finally says. Of all the things that I would have wanted, I would have wanted my mother's love. I mean, if that isn't the quintessential statement of a of a child, you know, her father she revered and forgave, her mother she couldn't forgive for not being a loving mother. Well, I think it's also because her father created this music, and yes. I think she I could know. touch his soul through yes, the music. And through when she, at the end, when she says it's through his music, he just he I just connect with him. Whenever I hear his music, he and I are together. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful piece of writing there, Jesse. Thank you. Yeah. I, I had good it I is. had good sources. <laughs> well, I think that is also a good place to end it. Oh well, thank you. This was most enjoyable. No, oh, thank you both. It was it was wonderful, and thank you for doing this terrific, terrific audiobook. And thank you for writing this book, Jesse. And thank you both, and Christina. I'll just keep saying thank you forever. <laughs> <laughs> That was actor Christine Baranski and New York Times theater critic Jesse Green. We were talking about Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers. It was written by Mary Rogers and Jesse Green and narrated by Christine Baranski. And Jesse Green narrates the footnotes and the epilogue. The publisher is Spiegel and Grau by Orange Sky Audio. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Check out audiophilemagazine.com for reviews of literally hundreds of audiobooks so you can make an informed listening choice. I'm Joe Reed. Thanks for listening.